0: With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this
1: is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese and Ryan Marine. Hello everyone, welcome to Double Stint, Sports Car 365's weekly sports car racing podcast back in Indianapolis. I'm Ryan Marine, John is back home in Chicago. Both of us were out in Las Vegas for the season finale of the SRO America Series of Championships and so we'll have plenty to talk about recapping the season finales, and uh, talking about champions and things of that nature from the event in Las Vegas. That's coming up in just a moment. We'll also have plenty of news to discuss, including a lot from the SRO banquet. There were a few little announcements, a little tidbit or two was unveiled at uh, at that season-ending gala, the global SRO Championship uh, Banquet. Uh, we'll have a conversation a little bit later. John caught up with Ian James, who secured the Borelli GT4 America Sprint Pro Championship um, in somewhat dramatic fashion over the weekend. And so we have a conversation with Ian about that and more. And we'll wrap things up with some listener questions. But John, let's dive into Las Vegas. We'll start with Blancpain GT World Challenge America where the Drivers' Championship was settled already coming into the weekend. However, there was still some drama and actually some intrigue during the races as well. K-Pax ultimately swept the pair of races. They did take the team's championship, but Tony v who was the champion-elect coming into the weekend, and the R-Ferry team did enough to clinch the uh, Manufacturer's Championship for Ferrari as well. Your thoughts on the pair of races we saw from the GT3 ranks?
0: Yeah, Ryan, it was a, a definitely a dominant weekend for k Packs. you can say that, um, sweeping the weekend, taking both wins, but it wasn't as clear-cut as the results showed. Um, I would say the R-Ferry car could have had race to um, a potential win, maybe, or, or at least a second-place finish if for not a uh, slow pit stop um, ended up um driving into the box a little too deep, um, had trouble refueling. I think they lost close to 15 seconds in that stop. And that's what ultimately cost them from uh, securing the team's championship for our ferry right there in race two and uh, what came right down to the wire. But, um, yeah, I was surprised at the domination by the K-Pax Bentleys. They seem to be on strength from from the word go. And um, other than a couple maneuvers on the track um, that were deemed, you know, uh, uh, penalties for for other competitors to sort of relinquish the positions um, due to the tight nature of the track. I think that, um, the, the Bentleys would have been leading basically the majority of the race anyway. So um, hats off to them. It was a real um, unknown for everybody heading into the weekend and what to expect. And I think they, those guys were the best to react to the, the environment and circumstances.
1: That was clearly the case. And their team execution was tremendous as well in the pits, which was really a theme throughout the season with the championship moving to the 90-minute format and the refueling and the tire change. Which was an evolution from the Sprint X format that we had seen in years past. And I think K PAX as a team had the pit side of things figured out even before the tire warmers came in, they, they had that strategy figured out using the cold tires. When the tire warmers came in, that didn't change anything. They, they seem to still have things uh, pretty much under wraps. Uh, Thomas Blum, I think, deserves a lot of credit for that. And I think, I think it's deserving that they end up with the team's championship. It would have been nice to see them fighting for the driver's championship this weekend. We all know what happened at Road America, but if there is a team that was head and shoulders above the rest in this series throughout the season, I think without a doubt it was k Packs.
0: Absolutely. They were operating to Blancpain GT Europe standards all year, and that's no disrespect to the rest of the SRO America paddock, but there were definitely a lot of changes, like you said, to the start of the year with the minimum, minimum pit stop deltas, tire changes refueling, um, tire warmers that were introduced midseason, and, and these guys were basically ran the operation like a clock i think both of the final stops in race two were, were within four tenths of the minimum time, and everybody else were, you know, either under, over, um, you know, uh, significantly over. And this was after a full season of racing, so um, really, really, really good work by Darren Law, Thomas Blom, um, the entire crew there that that got it got it done in the pit lane and on track with strategy. Um, this is a seasoned team, as you know, you know the underpinnings of it being Flying Lizard Motorsports, and I, I think they really showed what they're capable of and the caliber um, that they can go up against in in, in competition uh, on the racetrack.
1: The other team that was in the mix, at least from a pace perspective, was Wright Motorsports, both in pro and pro-am. But as has been the case really all season long, just a dismal weekend from a, a luck standpoint, it seemed, for that team specifically for the pro entry which was running in podium position before uh, a tire issue in race one they had a mechanical issue that ended their race early in race number two i give them credit for sticking out the season because it has not gone to plan frankly the porsches have been battling some things throughout the year and you really hoped that in what might be the team's swan song in the championship at least in the short term that there would be some kind of uh, light at the end of the tunnel, some kind of positive to take away in the final race weekend, and it seemed like Scott Hargrove and Patrick Long had the pace to do just that. But once again, fate conspired to take it away, and and you really have to feel for those guys.
0: Yeah, um, it seemed like this weekend they were finally back on form. I, I was really pleased to see the pace from the Porsche and. Unfortunately, it was just bad luck again with a, a tire uh, issue, I think with two minutes to go in, in race one, then some kind of drivetrain problem early on in, in race two. Um, then you kind of look at their sister car in Pro-Am and Anthony Imperato and and Matt Campbell won race, took the victory in, in race one, but then got a penalty a couple hours later due to contact between, um, between uh, Campbell and the number five gradient Acura of Mark Miller. And so that sort of was... Looked to be one of the highlights of the weekend for Wright, And it was just sort of snapped right away from them there, too. So um, really tough luck for that team. Um, There's a chance they may be back next year with with one Porsche, but um, not to the caliber of what they've been running now. So, yeah, it's an unfortunate situation for sure.
1: And should mention the other classes, we can knock out the the AM class pretty quickly because uh, it was just the Turner car that was there. So a couple of wins for them, obviously. The the AM championship had been wrapped up quite a while ago in favor of Martin Fuentes, who was actually racing in Pro-Am alongside Renger van der Zande over the weekend and uh, capped off the season with a Pro-Am win to go with all of his success in the AM class. Uh, that was in race number two. The Driver who ended up with the most points in Pro-Am was Dane Cameron, (laughs) but as we learned, and maybe we should have known this going into the weekend, but, uh, you know, mea culpa here, I didn't read the the rule books, uh, you know, start to finish, so I was unaware of this rule that if you are a pro driver in Pro-Am and you do not have a full-season Am- component to that, that you're linked to essentially in the points, then you cannot win the championship as a driver. And that was the case for Dane, who, again, did score the most points of any driver, but because he finished with the highest number of points and did not have that am driver with him, he was eliminated, basically, and just taken out of the points tables when the weekend was over. And that gave the championship to Kyle Marcelli and Martin Barkey. And I suppose from a certain side of things that is fitting because they are a true pro-am lineup they were there all season long and they were really really good it was a great year for racers edge but you had to feel for dane in real time to some degree as well because they were the dominant team not just in pro-am necessarily that that team had pace to, to fight in the overall ranks as we saw
0: yeah, I, I think the the rule it, it's a rule, and I think we all overlooked it. Um, you know, the the, the real time team didn't even know about this until heading into the final race weekend. I went up to Dane, you know, to preparing myself to do a nice little story about, you know, hey, what would it mean to win two championships in two weekends? You know, after his DPI title with Accurate Team Penske, and he broke the news to me, and it came as a as a, as a shock to to myself included. So. I, I understand the rule, but, you know, it's unfortunate the way it, it was communicated. Let's just say that I, I wish it was a little more transparent um, to all teams, to all competitors, to the media, et cetera, about the situation. Um, Dane referenced it as something like, you know, when he won the, the GT Daytona title in 2014, he wasn't paired with a full season AM driver either. And I know that's IMSA. That's a different series. But you know, you can sort of see it go both ways, Um, especially with Dane having originally scheduled to run with Brett Curtis for the season. Um, Brett ended up having a back injury and that forced him out of the car. That's why Mike Hedlund came in. And, you know, you could argue that if Brett was in the car for the full season, they may have not had the same success that they had with Mike. You never know. So there's a lot of ifs and coulds and shoulds. And I think the best way to bring this down is what you said ryan is that you know racers edge had a flawless year um stepping up to gt3 that was a huge move for for that team and um a great pairing with kyle marcelli and martin barkey um to consistently on the podiums um for for most of the season taking some wins as well so um congratulations to them they're definitely deserving drivers champions but the team's championship ended up going to real time so despite the difference in drivers throughout the year Um, The team points were still calculated no matter who was driving, I guess, and so um, real-time ended up taking the team's title in GT3 Pro-Am.
1: And because this is sports car racing, there is one caveat to what you said, and I don't think that they got points in Pro-Am for the one race that Dane had Trent Hinman as his co-driver at CTMP. Towards pro am, would that Correct. make sense?
0: Yes, yes, yes. So but they, still, they still ended up with enough points. over topple overtopple the overturn the the racers edge car, even though missing the first weekend of the year at Coda and missing race two at VIR. I believe that's what it was, right?
1: It was either VIR or CTMP. Whatever the case, the huh. the result was the same. <laughs> It is. It is complicated. There's another interesting, a couple other interesting caveats to some of these rules that we were talking about, but not not really time for it here. Anyway, it was an interesting season. We'll have a lot more to say about that in our year in review episode a little bit later, but congratulations to all of the champions, teams, drivers, manufacturers Ian Blancpain GT World Challenge America. All right, to GT4. Pirelli GT4 America will focus on sprint for reasons of time, primarily. Also, it was fascinating, and it was all season long, especially in the pro class. A great three-driver battle between Ian James, who ended up clinching the championship, as mentioned earlier, Uh, Also, Michael Cooper and Spencer Pompelli. There were others that factored in at various times. Jared Andretti comes to mind. Gar Robinson was there. Shane Lewis from time to time. But it was these three that were nip and tuck all season long and high drama, John, especially in race one that ultimately gave Ian James a bit of a cushion going into race two where he was able to clinch.
0: Race one was one of the most dramatic races I had seen in a long time, um, for GT four sprint. And, you know, we, we saw a great battle early on with Michael Cooper challenging for the lead. And then all of a sudden making a mistake into the infield section, dropping back to 10th, um, losing over 10 seconds in the process. And through the remainder of that race, he was gaining, he gained all that time back and was on the brink of winning the race. You know, I think he was running second at the time, all of a sudden then, um, Uh, Two laps to go, Spencer Pompelli dashes into the pits, dives down in the pit lane with a puncture. Then simultaneously, Michael Cooper's car has a puncture as well. Uh, Michael was on his way to to what looked like would have been a remarkable comeback win and basically hands the win to Ian James, who was kind of the consistent force through race one and um, that ultimately helped pave the way for Ian to, to take the title in, in race two by having another consistent run finishing fourth in race two uh, Michael Cooper dominating that race from flag to flag with no drama but um yeah, I, I think that sort of summed up the season in, in GT4 Sprint, and it sort of came down to luck. Um, Ian had a very unlucky race at Road America with some engine-related issues. Um, race two ended up being shortened, where he wasn't able to gain the positions he needed. He lost the championship lead that weekend to Cooper, and all three of those guys headed into the, this weekend with a, an 8.5 margin margin. Um, you know, between the three of them. And it all really came down to who stayed out of the pits, who didn't have trouble. And that ended up being Ian James for sure.
1: Yeah, there were a couple of turning points in this season. I I think each of these drivers can look back and say, this is where... Either in the case of Spencer or, or Michael, this is where the championship went awry. I think for, for for Spencer, the VIR weekend was a total disaster. They had a couple of tire issues uh, in that race and did not score any points in, in either of those two races there. That really doomed his chances, I think, ultimately. Um, Michael Cooper, I think, to some degree, you look at the slow start to the season that the Black Dog team had as they adjusted to the McLarens. That certainly put them behind. By the time they got to Road America, they had it figured out. Maybe one of the the sneaky turning points in the season, though, was the fact that Rain shortened Race 2 at Road America. Therefore, Cooper only scored half points for his win. He would have gone into this weekend with a bigger lead. I'm not sure it would have mattered, given the fact that they had the the tire issue in, in Race 1, as you mentioned. But, but when that happened... He was in really good position, even if he wasn't going to win race one, because he had the fastest lap, appeared to have the fastest car, and if he could have started on pole and and won race two, which he did, ultimately, uh, he would have been in a really good position if he had just finished second in in race one behind Ian. So uh, anyway, it was a wild season, a lot of fun to watch, some really good racing. I think for my money, this championship was the most consistently entertaining the GT4 Sprint Pro uh, of all of the championships that we saw, and uh, you never could look away, you never knew what was going to happen, and, and even down to the final lap on Sunday, there was always that chance that you could see history repeat itself, and uh, just the day before we saw, you can't count anything until they cross the, the start-finish line.
0: Yeah, I, I'd agree 100%, and this sort of says a lot for what World Challenge is, and this was the World Challenge's 30th year, and there was celebrations all throughout the weekend with that, and this is a Legacy World Challenge product, 50-minute single-driver racing. And I think this was definitely the most enjoyable series this year, like you said. Um, I, I really, I'm really looking forward to next year. Hope there's enough pro cars that come back to, to make this show entertaining in 2020 as well.
1: Drew Staveley swept the race wins at Las Vegas. He already had clinched the AM championship so so he clinched the he swept the am wins i should say and uh, already had the am title in hand so a great season for him once again on a fairly regular basis able to fight amongst the the pro cars and um, make make his presence known so uh, congratulations to him for a great season as far as pro league gt4 america sprint x is concerned the national pro am championship also came down to the wire with Sean Quinlan and Greg Leafuge from Stephen Cameron Racing, ultimately holding off the NOLA Sport team of Matt Travis and Jason Hart in a, a last lap attempt from Travis to get by Quinlan, uh, went awry, and uh, Quinlan was able to hold him off despite Travis ultimately having the pace. I think if he had had another lap, Travis would have probably been able to get past and and that would have been enough to win the championship. But that was a lot of fun to watch and, and pretty amazing, too. The hole that Quinlan and Leofuge dug themselves out of Travis and Hart got off to a torrid start to the season just absolutely dominating and it was kind of amazing to see it unravel to the point where they were still racing for a championship in the final race given the amount of success they had in the early rounds.
0: Yeah it was really cool to see the comeback by by the Stephen Cameron racing crew and um, those final few laps in race two were, were extremely entertaining as well. Um, he gave it his all and, and nearly, nearly got it done but um, hats off for winning the title. I think, you know, they ended up with the most consistent um, most consistent run, I think, through the season. And um, GT4 Sprint X at times was a bit difficult to follow with all the different classes, but um, it produced some good racing on the track as well.
1: Just a roll call of the other champions that were either crowned or recognized in the case of one that had been clinched coming into the weekend. Preston Calvert and Matt Keegan scored a championship for Team Panos Racing in the National Am Class, which, by the way, we discovered was the first driver's championship in the history of Team Panos Racing. They followed up with their second one day later when Ian James clinched uh, because Calvert and Keegan, just by starting, were able to take home uh, and secure their championship in race one. We already knew that John Miller and Harry Gonsacker were going to be the winners in West Pro-Am. They clinched that all the way back at Portland, and uh, they had a nice weekend at Las Vegas. Vesko Kozurov and Jeff Burton were your champions in the West-Am championship. So for full race results and, and full reaction to all of those races you can check out the website sportscar365.com finally though john let's let's wrap up with just some final thoughts on the weekend at las vegas as you mentioned there were a lot of questions coming in i think there was some good there was some not so good and then there was just kind of what we expected um the, uh, the good certainly was the global banquet. That was really great to see. So many um, from the SRO family globally were in town for the, for the races, actually, not just for the banquet. We saw a lot of faces around the racetrack from various series. I think the track layout was better than expected. Um, I heard, I heard from Andy Suchek. He said it was surprisingly interesting and you had to approach it in a different way. Really, maybe not taking the line that you would naturally take because of the varying grip levels around the track. You had to seek that out. And, and he thought that was part of his uh, success over the weekend. And then the attendance, which frankly was not very good. That was noted by several observers. Maybe that's not a huge surprise given, Uh, the lack of sports car racing history in Las Vegas. Those were my thoughts on the weekend. Uh, What about yours, John?
0: Yeah, I would definitely say the track was better than expected. Um, it seemed like we had a lot of concerns going into the weekend. There were some different layouts initially proposed. Ultimately, we the series had finalized on this layout, um, and it produced some good racing. I think a lot of drivers sort of took it as a like a street circuit in, in some ways, and in, in that you had transitions from different types of pavement um, onto the apron, you know, infield court. parts of the track there were definitely some challenges um you know luckily there were no major incidents i I think we only had two or three safety car periods throughout the entire weekend which was really really says a lot considering the number of races we had um between you know gt3 gt4 um, tc the saline cup so um hats off to the drivers i think more i think the drivers need to get a lot of recognition and keeping the races so clean and um, not having any major accidents. I I would say throughout the weekend, barring, I think one of the Celine cup um, cars from, from a practice session. But um, yeah, I I was um, impressed by how everybody sort of got together and made the most of the weekend. Um, Definitely attendance was not there. We saw some people on, on Saturday evening, which was nice to see a a few fans show up, but um, I'm not too sure how, much promotion there really was behind this event. I think the focus was very much on closing out the season and having the SRO Worldwide Gala Banquet in Las Vegas. That was more or less the reason why we were here in the first place. So um, like you said, Ryan, um, I think the the, the gala went, went off really well. Um, uh, great to see so many uh, champions crowned worldwide from, from SRO. And um, yeah, I, I think it was a fitting end to the season for sure.
1: Well, that's a look back at all that took place in Las Vegas. Again, more can be found at sportscar 365com But uh, that's going to wrap segment one for us, so let's take a break. When we come back, we've got plenty of news to get to. We'll start off from the SRO world, some big changes coming, and we'll discuss those next on Double Stint. Hi, guys. I'm Christian Fittipaldi,
2: and you're listening to Sportscar 365s Double Stint Podcast.
1: Back on Double Stint, time to turn our attention to the news of the week. And, John, some uh, some interesting tidbits came out of that season-ending banquet. Stefan Rattel spoke for a significant amount of time, talking a bit about the season that was, but also gave us a glimpse into the future. And so, based on a comment he made... And uh, and it was more than just a comment, I suppose. We've spent some time discussing it, but not a, not a lot of time. So we don't have a lot of details here, but it does sound like the pro class will be no more for what has been known as Blancpain GT World Challenge America looking ahead to next year. That name will also be changing, and we'll discuss that in a moment. Frankly, I think if that is indeed the case, that it'll be Pro-Am as the top class, it's probably a reflection of the reality. I know even before this was mentioned at the banquet, we spent some time trying to figure out where the pro-class cars were going to come from next year. But uh, it does leave us with a lot of questions about teams, about the future of the series, about the the stability of the series as well, looking to 2020 and beyond.
0: Absolutely. Um, When Stefan said that GT World Challenge America would be pro-am next year, that sort of came as a as a bit of a shock you know i looked around the our table you know uh, i was sitting at with some other recognized media members and it was like sort of, whoa okay but then you started figuring out well how many pro cars were there going to be anyway we know that Wright motorsports is leaving for the weather tech championship it hasn't been officially confirmed yet but um, for sure their pro entry would not be back there's some chances of a pro-am entry from Wright still materializing for next year um, our ferry i think their intention was to continue next year but that was probably the only team that had really outlined plans um, k as a longtime competitor of World Challenge for a number of years, um, team owner Jim Huey being a stakeholder in the series. There is uh, a big development going on with that team looking to potentially to move to Europe to run in Blancpain GT. Uh, World Challenge Europe with the Bentleys next year. Um, that is still not finalized. You can read a story on Sports Car 365 about that. Um, it's a bit buried in that story, actually, quite frankly, but it's uh, it's talking about um, Bentley's focus on customer entries in Europe next year as M Sport looks set to focus its efforts on the Intercontinental GT Challenge and Bentley promoting um, their customers to represent themselves in Uh, GT World Challenge Europe and that very well could include Bentley it could include K-Pax so um, that would have left maybe just one pro car so looking at it from that way I guess it does make sense to go Pro-Am, but there's still a lot of questions to be to be determined. Um, this year's Pro-Am class did not allow a platinum-rated driver, but you look at the Pro-Am classes in British GT and, and GT World Challenge Europe, and there are platinum drivers. And then there brings a question, you know, will there be a silver cup in GT World Challenge America? That was in the regulations for this year, but they didn't have enough entries. So, um Going pro-am may not be the end of the world because you may still have places for platinum drivers if they allow platinums to race with bronze rated drivers and also silvers with a pair of two rising star drivers could make it quite interesting. So um, uh, let's see what SRO America has to say. Um, Greg Gill still hasn't made any comments about these um, changes for next year. Also, um, what Stefan announced was a reduction to six races next year. And um, they flashed the schedule on the screen very briefly, I think for maybe a <laughs> second or two. Yep. I was trying to take a picture with my phone, but then I, it, it, it bounced away. And from what I saw up there was no Circuit of the Americas. And that was the initial plan was to start the GT season there um but it showed vir it showed ctmp as the opening round in may vir is being moved to june i believe unless there's unless there's been a further change to that schedule we don't know yet um Let's wait and see. The the facts though are according to Stefan that pro cars will not be allowed in GT World Challenge America next year. So, um, hopefully we'll get some more clarity in the in the next week. I've sent some inquiries into SRO America and hopefully we'll we'll have, be able to talk more about this on next week's show.
1: I have to say my initial reaction was of disappointment because if you were in, in North America if you were looking to see some top flight GT racers going at it in GT3 cars this was your option this was it this year and the the driver lineups have been pretty good since Sprint X was was brought in I, I think that's been one of the the calling cards of the series admittedly the number of pro cars dropping the way that that it has has made this this particular season um, a, a bit of a challenge from that standpoint. I, I will say my disappointment has been tempered a little bit by the fact that maybe this is something that does bring more GT3 cars to the table if that's the case, then you can build the from a solid foundation and maybe reintegrate pro cars down the road. I mean, that's kind of the history of the SRO in Europe, even to some degree, where this this did start as uh, really focused on the customers and the gentleman drivers. And now you do see some stout pro lineups uh, racing over there, and, and, and certainly the pro lineups that are worthy of a lot of recognition and excitement so maybe that's a, an opportunity to get back to that at some point but it, it is it is tough to see especially after 30 years of effectively professional racing at, at the top of of what has been known as League world challenge and other things in the past and i i hate to see that leaving and i hate to think that our only bastion of of true pro racing We'll be in GT4 cars next year, assuming nothing changes, and we do have our Sprint Pro class in probably GT4 America.
0: Yeah, and, and let's see about that. I, I, I think there there always could be changes down the down the line, and there, sometimes there's announcements, and they come out of left field um, in the series. So. Um, I can't really count on it. We, I don't think we can count on anything right now um, until we get the finalized calendars, finalized regulations, and those usually don't come until you know December, January. So um, let's wait and see.
1: The other big piece of news, and this one did not come as a surprise, but from the banquet, we had been hearing rumblings since at least the total 24 hours of Spa, if not before, that uh, there might be a new title sponsor search going on uh, with Blancpain's Perhaps ending its involvement with the SRO, and that that was announced over the weekend. It was uh, a really nice announcement. As far as title sponsors leaving go, uh, it seems like there's a great deal of mutual respect even still between Blancpain and, uh, and the series because there was a great presentation there at the banquet. In a lot of respects, I think, though, this does enter the series into a bit of a crisis of identity because for a lot of people, certainly the casual observer, but even within the sport, Blancpain is the series. That's what we know it by. And maybe there are people who don't even realize that was a sponsor over the years and thought that's just the name of this thing because it's been so ingrained with the SRO and with its uh, GT3 racing. So it's a big hole to fill. And I think most notably, John, there was no announcement of a replacement at the banquet, which leads us to believe that nothing's been finalized.
0: Correct. And, and I don't I don't know if we can expect a replacement at this time, or maybe we have regional sponsors in each of the three World Challenge series that maybe that's a possibility. Um, we'll have to see that. It would be quite ironic if, uh-huh. if say, Pirelli um, <laughs> steps up into the American title sponsor role and we have GT Pirelli World Challenge, and it basically brings the name back full circle two years later. Um, we could hope for that almost yes. because that would make things a lot more simpler um, because teams still call this the people. CWC in America. So um, we'll, we'll have to wait and see what happens there. But um, still an end of an era for Blancpain for sure. Um, they had been the founding sponsor of the GT Endurance Series back in 2011. So like you said, Ryan, everybody kind of knew it as the Blancpain Endurance Series. And then it grew into the Blancpain GT Series and encompassed um, the the Asian Championship, then the Sports Club, and then most recently this year with America, um, with the full World Challenge um, takeover, you know, name, naming rights for all three of the series this year. So um, an end of an era for sure. Um, Blancpain is refocusing its efforts on... Um, um, excavation and marine preservation in the waters, which is quite interesting. Um, never really heard of a a motorsport sponsor actually moving over to something (laughs) completely different, but, um, at least the honesty is there, you know, that where their focus is, is moving towards and, um, You know, I think we just have to really thank Blancpain for all of their support for GT3 racing, GT racing for this past decade, because um, I think we owe a lot to them just as much as we owe a lot to SRO for really um, putting it to this level of where it is today.
1: Yeah, I have to say it's got to be one of the more successful title sponsorships uh, in motorsports that I can think of just because of how intrinsically connected the two are. So, uh, yes, thanks indeed to Blancpain for their continued support of sports car racing, GT racing in particular. And we'll see what the future holds. And one final note coming from the banquet is the announcement of a new winter championship for SRO America that will be taking place, I think it is, what, three rounds at Thermal Club uh, over the, this upcoming winter?
0: Yeah, so details still to come on this one as well. Um, we had heard rumblings about it in in the paddock at Las Vegas over the weekend, and I think i put a little snippet in in one of our notebooks, but um, from what we understand, it's a three round championship all at thermal club and in Palm Springs, California. Um, it'll be eligible. I believe to GT3, GT4, GT three, GT four G and TCR cars. Also, I heard potentially GT two as well. Um, I think the first race is in November um, maybe December still don't have a calendar officially, but, um, it's a three round championship, I believe ending in February. So if you didn't have enough of SRO America, ac- uh, track action, we have more for you still. So, um, keep it tuned to SportsCar 365. Not sure if we'll have anybody on site. Um, but you never know. So, uh, more racing still to come this year from
1: SRO as well. And I will say, I did ask, and this was maybe not, totally altruistic this might have been for some personal reasons but i did ask if there was going to be any tv coverage i was told no so don't expect to see any streaming or anything like that of uh, of the winter series at least as of now but uh, that could change you never know so all right let's uh, get out of the sro tent for a moment and talk about a couple of other things uh from the news from uh, sports car racing and let's start in imsa where i know you had a conversation with Mark Kent from GM about Cadillac's involvement on the prototype side of things. And we do know that DPI for Cadillac is locked in through 2020. But what the future holds beyond that, still a bit undecided, although clearly there is interest to keep this program going.
0: Yeah, I think it was interesting that he said the program's confirmed through the end of 2020. But I don't think this is any reason to raise alarm bells right now. Um, There's a lot of political action at play. Um, We saw this year in in BOP quite clearly um, with the Cadillacs maybe not necessarily having the pace to the Acura and Mazdas in the middle of the season. And I think GM is trying to position themselves to make sure they have a competitive car. Um, to ensure them a a fair chance of the title for for next year and then they would probably commit to 2021. Also, another committing factor is, you know, what does DPI 2.0 look like? Will GM commit to that? Um, They're one of the nine manufacturers in the in the discussions, at least the the initial nine manufacturers. We believe a few may have dropped out since. But um, yeah, I, I think uh dpi 2.0 2022 whatever imsa wants to call it now i think it interests them for sure mark said it's um, definitely going in a good direction Um, the hybrid is something that does not interest gm that's pretty clear Um, gm is going Full electric, you know, in their roadmap for for the production for production cars, they're bypassing hybrid technology. Um, they're, I think they they ended production of one of their um, hybrids, the Volt, um, recently, which was a plug-in hybrid, and they're rolling out more electric, all electric cars, including a bunch coming from the Cadillac lineup in the years to come. So um, we'll have to wait and see what brand might be in DPI 2.0 for. For GM, if they decide to continue, would it be still be Cadillac or maybe another uh, brand instead? Who knows. But um, bottom line is, I think GM is still in it for the long haul, but um, some stuff still to be figured out.
1: Okay, and then moving to the WEC. We've been speculating about the future of hypercar. It seems like for years at this point, but maybe it's not quite <laughs> that long. Uh, but uh, we've all, we definitely have been speculating about Peugeot and their potential return to um, to prototype racing for years, ever since they pulled out effectively. And we're we're back in that conversation now with some interesting news that they might be headed to hypercar, at least in a customer racing capacity.
0: Yeah, this is something that came to light during the the Fuji weekend in WVC. Basically, if this happens, it would more or less be a customer engine supply role, from what we understand, um, linked with Orica and Rebellion Racing. Orica has been talking with a bunch of OEMs. We've had stories from Dan Lloyd about this on Sports Car 365, of uh, Orica trying to finalize a deal with an OEM to make a hypercar. And uh, the Peugeot is definitely one of the manufacturers they've been in discussions with. We believe this is with Rebellion, um, which which would lead to a uh, Peugeot-engined Rebellion hypercar Um, potentially for 2021, 2022, but um, no decisions yet, no official commitment. I think something will have to come by the end of the year in order for this program to get the green light. Um, Whether this is the the saving grace for Hypercar with the third manufacturer remains to be unclear. We know the ACO is still pursuing potential integration with DPI 2022. So, um, yeah, there's still a lot of moving pieces here, but to at least get another manufacturer, showing some interest in this platform, I think is a good sign. We don't have nobody else really in the pipeline. So um, I think it's good news to at least get something out there that there's some interest. And uh, fingers crossed we can get a commitment from from all parties there to get this program off the ground.
1: Yeah, I suspect that headline brought some smiles to people's faces just seeing the possibility, not just of another manufacturer, but a manufacturer with some heritage in the sport. So good to see. Hopefully it comes to fruition time will tell. That's a look at the news for this week. There's a lot more to say about all of those stories and plenty of other stories we didn't have time for this week, so check out the website, sportscar365.com, for more. Up next, we will hear from your Pirelli GT4 America Sprint Pro Champion Ian James from Team Pano's Racing. He was also the team manager for the team, and they picked up a couple of championships. But uh, this conversation with Ian, John was able to catch up with him pretty much right after he got out of the car uh, after race two at Las Vegas and clinched that title. So hopefully you enjoy it. That's next on Double Stint.
2: Hi, I'm Andy Prio, and you're listening to the Sports Car 365's Double Stint Podcast.
0: Welcome back to Double Stint. We're here with Ian James, the 2019 Pirelli GT4 America Sprint Pro Champion, um, right after a, a fourth-place finish in the second round here at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. That looked to be a nail-biter in the, in the final few laps, looking at the positions, you know, looking
2: at where you had to be. Um, first off, congratulations, but
0: what was the race from your perspective?
2: Well, yeah, thanks. Obviously, uh, you know, going into it with a you know, 16 and a half point cushion, I knew I needed a, fifth, a fourth or fifth place finish. So, you know, that was my focus with zero risks. But when you take zero risks, sometimes you get into different people's battles, you know. So I had a couple of close encounters and then I uh, had Jarrett Andretti in front of me and Drew Staveley right behind me at the end there. So, uh, I just try to bring it home but those last 10 minutes definitely seemed a lot longer than that
0: yeah you brought it home got enough points to to win the driver's championship also back-to-back teams titles for team painos racing you obviously taking an increased role with the team what does it mean this year what does it mean for for, to achieve that um uh, title as well
2: well obviously this year was in honor of don you know after his passing away last year so there was a lot of responsibility on my shoulders and uh it's just a the team have worked so hard, and I'm just so elated for them. I'm so elated for the panels family that made this happen, and uh, it's an awesome feeling.
0: You entered the weekend a, a bit behind in the championship. It's gone tooth and neck throughout the year. I think you know we've had a lot of issues for some cars, some cars having bad luck. I think Road America turned out to be your unlucky race. Did you imagine going into this weekend having it all turn around after after race one with the unfortunate um, punctures by Spencer and, and
2: Michael there? Absolutely not. You know, I was definitely the underdog coming into this weekend. Uh, but with the, uh, you know, Road America, like you say, we had a big p- points cushion there. That evaporated. And then uh, when we came back to here, I thought, I don't know if it can be done. But unfortunately, they had some, or they had some bad luck and uh, luck was on our side.
0: We're talking with Ian James, 2019 Pirelli GT4 America Sprint Champion. Um, unbelievable year for Panos as, as a whole, um, Preston, Calvert and Matt Keegan also won the championship in Sprint X Pro-Am, what do you have to say about the whole team, you know, you said racing in honor of Don this
2: year, it must mean a lot to sort of achieve this much success throughout, throughout the year in SRO America. It does, you know, I mean, like to have, you know, both cars win their championships, uh, it, it means so much, you know, and it's just a testament to the hard work and the, the groundwork that was put in and uh, those two drove amazing all year as well yesterday they proved it there were some new cars in the class they beat them as well so uh, they're a deserved champion no doubt
0: what was the challenges this weekend heading into las vegas it was a bit of an unknown track for everybody did you expect the painos to be so quickly up to speed or how did you sort of figure out where the competition would fare
2: you know having not even seen the you know the track layout till you know, a couple of days before it really was a, a venture into the unknown uh, it was pleasantly surprised that the, the car wasn't too bad around here. It was kind of like a street circuit in my, in my mind. If there were some more walls, it would have been a street circuit. And uh, the panels always goes well in, uh, on street circuits. has good traction, good braking, turns well in the middle of the corner. Um, so uh, we were lucky that the layout uh, suited us. So season's in the books. I know you've been trying to work on some
0: stuff for next year. Any, any updates, any, any plans to, to see the Avanzano GT4s back
2: in as SRO competition in 2020? I'm pretty confident we'll see uh, some Amazonas on the racetrack next year. So we're just uh, just trying to figure out those details, but uh, it's not the end. It's and
0: what about defending your championship? Is that could could
2: that be in the cards? Probably not. I probably uh, you know probably be more of a, a pro am setup. I may drive with a with a customer, or or we'll just drive all ams. But uh, I'm not hanging the boots up quite yet. Uh, you'll probably see me at Daytona.
0: Well, you definitely still have a lot of speed in you. So uh, looking forward to that.
2: Yeah, I uh, I love this, you know, and uh, while I can still do it, I'm going to do it as much as I can.
0: All right. Thanks a lot, and congratulations again. Thank you. Hi, I'm Martin Tomchig, and you're listening to SportsCast 365's Double Stint Podcast.
1: Back on Double Stint, thanks to John, thanks to Ian for the time. Just a moment ago, uh, you heard the interview with Ian James, so I do appreciate hearing from him, and congratulations to Ian and the Panos team on a successful season. A lot of questions about what's to come for the team, but fingers crossed we'll see them back on the grid next year. All right, John, let's uh, move to some listener questions. Some of these came in on Twitter with the hashtag AskDoubleStint, others in the comment section from last week's show. First one does come from Twitter, where Dr. Joey Bananas wanted to know, can you do some special episodes on some prototypes of the past or present and some comparisons during the off-season? He writes, he loves Double Stint, but wish there was an extra episode or two a month. Have Ryan do a couple 20-minute in-depth episodes per car. <laughs> uh, I appreciate the faith you're putting in me, Dr. Joey Bananas. I'm not sure I'm the one you want doing anything mechanical. but uh, and, and frankly, I think John's got a better grasp of the history of all this. But I think it's an interesting idea, especially in the off season. What do you think, John?
0: Yeah, it's not a bad idea. We'll see if we can fit it in with all the other <laughs> yeah. racing that is, in quote, that is in the quote off season. Right. Um, I think we literally have like a two or three week break, but um, yeah, great idea. We always love suggestions on, on how to better our podcasts and, and other ideas. And we really appreciate the, the feedback.
1: Yeah. Thanks for listening as well. And, and you might see a special episode or two down the line. Thanks for writing in. Got another one here from Edgar Sanchez, who writes, if DPI 2.0 does get the chance to race at Le Mans, how do you entice top DPI teams to actually compete at Le Mans? He says he remembers the ALMS days when many teams, Dyson, Penske, Porsche, Andretti Acura, etc., skipped Le Mans despite being eligible to race.
0: I think it's a different era now where you have more manufacturer-driven entries wanting To expand their efforts. So speaking to Mark Kent from Cadillac, you know, I said, if if DPI became eligible at Le Mans, would you go? And he said, yeah, we'd go in a heartbeat. So you'd get the push from Cadillac for their customer teams to go over there. Um, You know, the story of Mazda always wanting to compete at Le Mans. Penske's always wanted to compete for the overall win at Le Mans. So if that Acura is eligible, then I think there'd be a strong chance you would see penske go over there um that's the reason why you didn't see the penske rs spiders at lamar in in the years before even though those cars were eligible in lmp2 they wouldn't be able to go for the overall win and i think that was one of the big sticking points why you didn't see roger penske go over there so um bottom line is i think it's a different time i think it's a different era so um it would definitely be interest from imsa teams to do it should those cars become eligible whether it's dpi 1.0 or 2.0 or whatever
1: Good question. Thank you very much, Edgar, for writing in. And finally, from Matt, who wants to know, what do you think about the GT2 regs in terms of where it sits in the sports car racing landscape? Do you think there is space in the sports car racing landscape for another sports car reg regardless of its target market? He says he'd rather see the GT3 regs get reviewed and potentially get scaled back to see GT3 cars be more cost effective. And I think... Matt, you hit on the, the salient questions uh, surrounding GT2 that we've all been trying to figure out since it was announced. Where does this fit in? And at least in North America, we have some ideas and certainly in Europe, too, under the SRO umbrella. But it's still a lot of questions remain. Yeah.
0: And, and it, to answer your question about GT3 cars being more cost effective, this is something the FIA is specifically working on for the next Regulations refresh due in 2022, and we should have confirmation of this in December at the next World Motorsport Council meeting, Um, talking to some manufacturers in the paddock, they have really stressed on finding ways of reducing the cost to teams, I think specifically spare parts. Um, A lot of these cars have a lot of um, advanced aero work on them. And so if you need a new nose or a tail section or a diffuser, it costs a lot of money to replace. So I think we can sort of see expect GT 3s to be scaled back a little bit in the next set of regulations. Um, Unfortunately, that might make it a little closer to what GT two is right now in terms of aero development, GT two is more of a raw car with less aero, but more power, Um, not expecting GT3 to get more power, uh, just to be clear. But um, where GT2 fits in the regulations, that's really the million-dollar question right now because it is quite similar to GT3. We saw a a lone GT2 car take part in the Barcelona Sports Club race with James Safronis at the wheel with the new Audi R8 LMS GT2. Um, He was battling right there with the GT3 cars um, that were... um, arguably they were driven by bronze rated drivers like James but um he ended up getting an overall podium in that race um that Audi was not BOP'd it was basically what Audi had developed as a GT2 car and that car was significantly faster than Porsche's GT2 car um which led to some of the, to some of the Porsche teams not appearing in that race on a fear of not having a chance to win so There's still a lot of work to be done in terms of getting the technical regulations under a common set, per se, maybe with with via a BOP for GT2, and also what other manufacturers are coming. We got news officially this week that McLaren has called off their GT2 car. That was supposed to be announced in Barcelona. Um, Stefan Reitel told me there's still more GT2 manufacturers in the pipeline. He's still very confident in this platform. But what we've also seen is GT2 and GT3 will separately in Europe with Sports Trophy in separate cl- separate races next year. That was supposed to be a combined series. But in America, there is traction for GT3 to be added to the GT2 Sports Club, which will get underway, I believe, at VIR in June. So there's a distinct possibility of having GT3 cars racing in two different SRO championships next year in America, in GT World Challenge America and GT Sports Club, which will be looks like it could be GT2 and GT3. So um, lots of evolution, lots of changes from the initial announcements we saw back in Spa in July. But um, SRO continues its evolution and we'll see where it goes.
1: I'll hazard a guess that won't be the last change that, uh, that we'll hear about. There's still a lot of moving parts trying to find a way to make all of this fit together. So for that reason, it was a really good question. Thank you for writing in here this week. Uh, finally john we do have some more racing this weekend it is the lamborghini world final at Jaref. jake Kilshaw will be on site for that race and and this is a really neat event i was fortunate to cover it the last couple of years it's f- so fun to see the the world the, the lamborghini super trofeo series from three different continents converging in one place they have the season finales for their respective continental championships and then they're all thrown into the mix together as they go for the world final. It's it's really cool, and uh, it's a, a great great venue for it as well.
0: Absolutely. It always produces a lot of good racing, a lot of up-and-coming talent we see um, from these uh, these these races. I remember Dennis Lind won the, the world final, I think, in 2016, and he came close to winning the Blancpain GT World Challenge Europe title. If they are not missing the final race um, uh, of the season, he would have been paired with... Uh, uh, the the triple F team with uh, up, up on the top of the podium there, but nonetheless, yeah, looking forward to um, that action. Jake will have it all on Sports Car 365. Following week, we have the motorsport games in in Rome at Vallelunga. Um, uh, Dan Lloyd will be there. So then the week after that, it is Shanghai WEC. So plenty of racing still to come, despite the major uh, North American series having come to a, a close in the last couple weeks
1: no doubt about it still busy time this off-season thing I keep hearing about it I think its it might be a myth it, that's, that's the way it seems <laughs> to me at this stage but this episode has drawn to a close thank you so much for listening thanks to those of you who wrote in really appreciate Ian James' time on the show as well that will be a wrap for us we'd love a rating and a review on iTunes and uh, we hope you tune in to next week's show this has been the Double Stint Podcast